Hi, this is Steve with Thresher Media Group. Welcome to When You're Ready to Listen. This podcast is dedicated to exploring the truth about God, things you may not have understood, may not have been taught, or quite frankly, had a very hard time believing. And since our entire relationship with God rests on believing, it is important we learn how to separate the truth from the many lies and fictions that abound within the religion of Christianity. So when you're ready to listen, tune in and discover a pathway to freedom, encouragement, life, and hope. Episode 74, Revelation 9, verses 20 through 21, part 4. We've been discussing this issue of our willingness to believe and how it contrasts with the work of our hands, which God clearly despises. In our last podcast, we answered the question, what it is that God requires from us, what it is that he desires to produce in us. We discussed our willingness in action and the need to go to war against the enemies in our soul so we might come to identify as sons of the living God and not just slaves living in his household. This was also important to get us to comprehend what is one of the most shocking truths in the book of Revelation. And that is the idea that so many within the household of God, due to their hard and fast commitment to the work of their hands, are worshiping demons. The worship of demons, Revelation 9.20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood. We must not miss the connecting point in this passage and simply fail to grasp the immensity of this connection. The Spirit essentially said that our commitment to the work of our hands, our trying very hard to be good for God and to serve Him and to serve the church, to being a holy witness to others, and our performing all manner of religious disciplines for whatever reasons, amounts to the worship of demons and to idolatry. This is mind blowing. Does this mean that the religion of Christianity at large has been worshiping demons and given over to idolatry? How is that possible? How is trying to be a good Christian and a good witness the worship of demons and idolatry? We must never forget. The source matters. The source is everything. If Jesus, the only one who is good, is not doing his works in and through our lives, our works are not honored, much less accepted. They are unholy offerings presented to the demonic. The source always matters. As we learn in Jesus' communication to the seven churches, if what we do is not a direct result of Jesus living his life in and through ours, then all our religious deeds are beyond worthless. They're rooted in the demonic and are craving for idolatry. This is another way of saying that if anything we do is not a result of grace through faith, what God does as a result of our now believing him, though formerly unbeknownst to us, we have been worshiping demons and steeped in idolatry. By the way, this reference to demons, as we have discussed previously, is a broad term, a generic reference to fallen angels, regardless of their rank, status, or place in the angelic hierarchy. Let's now consider this issue of demon worship and idolatry. The truth is that when we look to anyone or anything, including our own goodness and our innate and learned capabilities, 
to be for us what Yahweh is to be for us, which is everything, our I am, we worship demons and practice idolatry. We may not be so blatant about it that we literally have carved images of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, though many people do, but it is idolatry nonetheless. All our self-protection, idolatry. All our love for our own goodness, idolatry. All our trust in our own ability to guide our lives, idolatry. All our confidence in our own wisdom, idolatry. All our trust in any person or institution to be the source of our provision, idolatry. All our search for peace, rest, and security in practices and philosophies that are not Yahweh, idolatry. And on and on it goes. It all amounts to the worship of the demonic, the hosts of heaven, who have fallen and continue to be falling. The demonic loves religion. They love worship. And they have always mimicked God and have attempted to persuade mankind to honor them and to worship them. They too swallowed the original lie spoken by the serpent. They too believe they can be like God. So they work in and amongst the household of God to convince believers that the work of their hands is worthy, honorable, holy, righteous, and fitting for good Christians. They work to convince believers that their battle is with sin and that the shame and guilt they feel is just an indicator that they need to fight harder and try harder. Yahweh is the I am, and he wants us to know him intimately as our I am, the answer and the provision to everything we need all the time. As he once communicated to me, to be my elect, my chosen, is to understand who I am, when I am, how I am, and that I am. We are commanded to trust in Yahweh with all our heart and mind, and in no way, shape, or form are we to depend on our own understanding or our own wisdom. He is to be our only source, for the source matters. The source is everything. There has always been a plethora of ways that mankind has unknowingly and knowingly connected with demons as they attempt to consult with the spirits or to call on the universe for aid and assistance. Hence, throughout time, there has always been soothsayers, wizards, witches, fortune tellers, magicians, satanists, necromancers, astrologists, and the like. In fact, long before Moses ever showed up and gave a law against such things, we read of those who consulted with spirits in the night. But who would have thought that those who love the religion of Christianity, with its emphasis on being good witnesses for Christ in our community, not sinning, serving God, serving others, and being disciplined according to the so-called holy habits and doing so much good in his name and so on, are just like those soothsayers, wizards, witches, fortune tellers, magicians, Satanists, necromancers, astrologists, and the like. But if you stop and think about it, you will realize that the religion is always coming up with another device, another method, another program, another system for believers to be good Christians and good witnesses to the world, and most importantly, to have victory over sin. Their iron cauldron is always burning and mixed with something new, something old, or a blend of both that is guaranteed this time to work. When our worship is rooted in the work of our hands, those offerings we make to God that he deems vile, 
it all amounts to the worship of demons and is another form of idolatry. Again, if anything we do is not a result of grace through faith, what God does as a result of our now believing him, then though formerly unbeknownst to us, we are worshiping demons and steeped in idolatry. Sadly, all of this will continue as people will be reaching out for something, anything but Yahweh, to get them through this time of terrible distress. But it will be to no avail, for our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. As the first and the last, he chose to tell us the story before it happens. He did this so no one would have to be surprised, but everyone could understand the end of the story. His desire is that people in general, but especially those in his household, would come to repent, as he desires all of mankind to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But tragically, they refuse. They love and are deeply committed to the work of their hands. Come on, give me a break. It seems like a huge leap to go from the errant, though good-intentioned, worship of God to unwittingly worshiping demons and being immersed in idolatry. Isn't there something in between? This seems way too binary and not at all reasonable. Why does everything always have to be about the scary demons? It's these kinds of passages and these types of declarations that make true believers sound like crazy people and a bit off hinge. Well, that may be, but let's take a look behind the veil. Behind the veil. We started this venture in Jude and Revelation with the understanding that God was giving us a top-down view of things, how he sees things as they function in the unseen realms and how all the dynamic eventually plays out in our physical realm. For the most part, those who abide in this world are unaware of the unseen realm and how it impacts their lives. But the entire codex is about the unseen realms and how they impact our lives. When we look close enough, it's all over the pages of the Bible. Those who abide in the world. When the codex mentions those who abide in this world, it works as a defined term. It speaks of those who have made their home, their identity, their purpose, and their belonging in the physical realms. They may be aware of the unseen realms, but they really do not care. They fight for this life, being largely unaware of what that means for them in the afterlife. As we go forward, please keep this definition in mind whenever the term abide in this world is utilized, for it becomes a significant indicator and a separator amongst people. The perspective of those who abide in this world is Somewhat understandable, since our experience in this world is intense and sensual, and that it seems to be hardwired to every aspect of our senses. And absent a work of the Holy Spirit, an intentional invasion of light into darkness, a Genesis 1-3 and Isaiah 51-9 experience, it is so hard to find the separation between the physical and the spiritual, between the darkness and the light. The Rulers of This World for the most part, those who abide in this world believe that they run the world, that they run their own lives, that they determine their destiny. And many are fully convinced that they determine the destiny of others. Mayors, governors, members of Congress, presidents, vice presidents, members of parliament, kings, queens, directors, managers, and those with many more colorful titles firmly believe that they are in control of their respective kingdoms, be it large or small whether a business, a town, a district, a city, a country, a state, or a nation, or a collective of nations. 
But this is all subterfuge. According to the Codex, the rulers of this world are the spiritual beings who have been given authority over the nations and the territories of the nations, referred to in Revelation as the kings of the earth. These spiritual beings make decisions and act according to the authority granted to them by Yahweh Sabaoth, their master, the Lord of the hosts of heaven. In turn, their human counterparts at all levels of authority and ownership make decisions and act according to the authority that has been granted to them by these spiritual rulers. We're going to take a little journey to understand more about the unseen realm and how it has a direct rulership over our natural seen realm. This journey is intended to help us understand the claim that if we are not living by grace through faith, we are worshiping demons. There's just no middle ground, no matter how much we wish there was or how ignorant we are about the spiritual dynamic that operates behind the veil. This is fascinating stuff, and it all comes directly out of the Codex. The Division of Nations The first explanation of this dynamic, of how those in the unseen realms impact and even rule over all of us in the natural realms, is given to us by Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 32, 8-9 When the Most High assigned lands to the nations, when he divided up the human race, he established the boundaries of the peoples according to the number in his heavenly court. For the people of Israel belong to Yahweh. Jacob is his special possession or the allotment of his inheritance. This all points back to the time when God established the nations, better understood as people groups, by assigning them specific territory and establishing their boundaries. In the book of Acts, we are told that Yahweh determined the appointed times and the boundaries of the nations and their inhabitation. Thus, the division of various people groups and their associated land grab was not random, but an intentional act by Yahweh. He then, for lack of a better word, divorced or separated himself from the people of these nations, but retained as his inheritance, his own allotment, the people of Jacob. The idea is that Yahweh would have direct ownership and rule over the people of Jacob, who at this time did not even exist. So this was a prophetic declaration. And the people of the nations would be given over to the rule of those in his heavenly court, according to their number. See the footnote for an explanation of how the various biblical manuscripts render this phrase, according to the number in his heavenly court. This separation or divorce of sorts may sound odd since the Codex also declares that God rules or reigns over the nations, and he unequivocally does, because those to whom he has granted agency of rule still report to him, and they are submitted to his absolute authority. It is his heavenly counsel, and as Yahweh Sabaoth, he sits on his holy throne, and he is highly exalted. Still, he has granted agency authority to these spiritual beings, to these kings of the earth, while at the same time, preserving his absolute judgment over the peoples and the nations. This is clear in Isaiah 13 through 21, as God declares judgment over very specific nations in which he will use the agency of the angelic to carry out his orders. God and countries. The Codex identifies many of these gods were their respective nations, all who manifested themselves to humanity to be worshipped. For example, Dagon was the god of the Philistines. 
Ashtoreth was the goddess of the Sidonians. Chemosh was the god of Moab. Milcom was the god of the sons of Ammon. Baal was another god of the Moabite. Baal-zabub was the god of Ekron. Sukoth-benoth was the god of Babylon. Nergal was the god of Kutah. Ashima was the god of Hamath. Nibhaz and Tartak were the gods of the Avites. Adramalek and Anamalek were the gods of the people from Sepharavim. And Yahweh declared 220 times that he alone was the God of Jacob slash Israel. The Mystery of Agency The Codex tells us that the angel Michael, a good angel in the heavenly court, is the prince who stands guard over the people of God, Jacob, in its literal and its metaphoric meaning as applied to the people of faith. And with him are angels like Gabriel who fight other spiritual beings that align their spiritual forces, their nations, their people, and their activities directly against the nation of Israel. For instance, the Prince of Persia and the Prince of Greece. It should be apparent that the Codex is not saying that Michael and Gabriel pick fights with mere humans, princes of these nations, for that would not even be a tussle. Angels are far more glorious and powerful than humans. After all, Gabriel admits that the Prince of Persia held him up from delivering a message to the prophet Daniel for 21 days, and he needed the help of Michael, a chief prince, one of the archangels, to get past the prince of Persia. No human could block the passage of even the least of the angels for even a moment. Thus, Michael's and Gabriel's fight is with their spiritual colleagues, princes who rule over nations and who direct their human counterparts. Oddly, we're even told that Gabriel was sent to strengthen and to be a protection for Darius the Mede during the first year of reign. According to the book of Daniel, Darius became the first leader after the combined army of the Medes and the Persians conquered the Babylonian Empire, and he was merciful towards the captive Jews. This is another example of the angels providing support to human rulers. Then, in speaking of the king of Tyre, Yahweh mentioned that he was in Eden, the garden of God. It goes on to say that he was the anointed cherub who covers, that he had Yahweh's signet ring, the seal of perfection, and that he was on the holy mountain of God and walked in the midst of the stones of fire. Clearly, Yahweh is speaking to the angelic spirit that is behind the earthly king of Tyre. In this instance, the description just so happens to be that of Lucifer. Lucifer personally empowered the king of Tyre, such that from the view of the heavenlies, they were one, the spirit and the man. In another instance, the spirit tells the prophet Isaiah to take up a taunt against the king of Babylon. And as with the image of the king of Tyre, in this image, we come across another description of a spirit, a ruler, but this time he is the spirit behind the world empire of Babylon. How you have fallen from heaven. O star of the morning, son of the dawn. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. In the book of Daniel, we're also given a fascinating story about Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the man and not the spirit. 
In this instance, the man, the king, became arrogant, full of himself, believing that he was personally responsible for the glory of the Babylonian Empire. It was likely that his pride was directly influenced by the spiritual prince that ruled over his kingdom in the unseen realms. And even though Yahweh had previously revealed himself to Nebuchadnezzar as the Adonai, the one and only Lord, the king honored himself and not God, believing that the empire was a work of his own hands. His pride was out of control and off the rails. Subsequently, he was warned in a vision, a dream given to him by Yahweh, that due to his arrogance, he would be cut down and his mind would be changed from a man to that of a beast. It's as if he would become a lunatic, probably much like the demonic spirit that inspired his pride and arrogance. He was sentenced by Yahweh, but it was communicated through agency in a prophetic dream. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whom he wishes, and sets over it the lowliest of men. Behind the scenes, Yahweh, via the spirits, via agency, drives the nations and their leaders, determining their destinies. Next to the story of Job, there is probably not a more powerful picture of how Yahweh works through the agency of the angelic amongst the leaders of humanity than in the story where King David took a census of the people of Israel. There are two accounts of the story in the Codex. The first story shows us what God decided, and the second story shows us how he accomplished his desire through the adversary, Satan. But let's start with the second story and work backwards. In 1 Chronicles 21.1, we are specifically told that Satan stood up against Israel, which is an Old Testament phrase that is used to communicate when a spiritual being takes some sort of overt action. And he provoked David, King David, to number Israel. The text is clear. Satan is the provocateur and David is his target. Yet in the first story, in 2 Samuel 24, 1, we are told that the avenger of Yahweh burned against Israel and he caused David to harm them by taking a census. The Hebrew word translated as caused carries with it the idea that he intentionally pricked or provoked David to act. So behind the scenes, Yahweh intentioned to bring judgment on Israel. And from his counsel, he instructed Satan to be the instrument or the agent to directly provoke David to be the instrument or the agent to make a terrible decision that would result in the nation of Israel being judged by Yahweh. Yahweh decided to use the tool of Satan, who in turn decided to use the tool of David to accomplish Yahweh's intended outcome. The point of it all is that behind the scenes, Yahweh, via the spirits, drives the nations and their leaders, determining their destinies, and it all happens through agency relationships. The Great Division and Divorce This idea that the people of Israel belong to Yahweh separate and distinct from the other nations of the earth, can be traced back to the story of the Tower of Babel. At that time, the peoples of the earth were as one. They all spoke the same language and used the same words. Then, in an act of defiance, wanting to prove that they can be like God, they decided to build a tower to reach into the heavens 
to make a name for themselves so that all the people of the earth would remain and not go off and scatter abroad over the face of the whole earth. The leader of the pack at this time was a mighty man named Nimrod, who was married to Semiramis, whose son was Tammuz. The story of Semiramis and Tammuz is a particular note, and it is an essential part of understanding the references in Revelation to the woman who rides the beast. All of that is addressed in Revelation 17. So for now, let's just say that Semiramis is famed for having led the people to worship the hosts of heaven, the angelic beings. Her religion of sorts was likely the impetus to building the tower to the heavens. And her son, Tammuz, became one of the first messianic symbols, even worshipped by the women of Israel. Yahweh's plans, however, were different than that of Nimrod or Semiramis. And Yahweh confused the language of the people so they would not understand each other. As a result, they stopped building the temple. Yahweh then scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. And the earth itself was divided into its various pieces, further separating each people group. And singling out Jacob as his sole inheritance among the nations, his allotment, it is evident that the other nations, the scattered nations, were given over to the kings of the earth, the number of the sons of God, the angels of God, or the number of his heavenly court. Accordingly, Yahweh warned his people as follows, Deuteronomy 4, 19 through 20. And be aware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which Yahweh your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But Yahweh has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession as today. The list of 70. At that time of the Babel debacle, it seems that there were 70 nations, according to their representative list of rulers descended from Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Does that mean that there are only 70 spirits who rule the nations? No. Let's go back to that passage in Deuteronomy 32. When the Most High assigned lands to the nations, when he divided up the human race, he established the boundaries of the peoples according to the number in his heavenly court. This does not infer a one-for-one occupation. Rather, it leaves open the idea that all manner of demonic presence would be placed within separate and distinct territories, such that all members of the court had their earthly responsibility to manage at differing levels of authority and responsibility. Besides, in the images we are given in the Codex of the heavenly court, there are clearly more than 70 angelic beings present. In the Codex, we are given a behind-the-scenes view at one of the council meetings. They were discussing how the spirits were going to entice King Ahab, the king of Israel, to go to war, with the result that he would be killed. 1 Kings 22, 19-23 Therefore, hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. Yahweh said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before Yahweh and said, I will entice him. Yahweh said to him, How? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, You are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. 
Now, therefore, behold, Yahweh has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these prophets, and Yahweh has proclaimed disaster against you. In this image, we see a gathering of all the hosts of heaven, which is an innumerable number, far more than 70. In fact, the Codex refers to their number as myriads or myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. The Spirit also makes the point that the hosts of heaven are standing on Yahweh's right and left, indicating a division, a separation. Coupled with the pattern Jesus gives us in Matthew about setting the sheep on his right, those who inherit his kingdom, and the goats on his left, those assigned to eternal fire, we might make the conjecture that this image follows that pattern and the good spirits are on Yahweh's right side, the right being a symbol of strength and might, and the bad spirits on its left. And we know that the fallen angels are present in this gathering because the one who came up with a plan is identified as a deceiving spirit, a liar. Still, this is God's heavenly counsel. And although he seeks input, remember, he works through agency. As the principal, he takes responsibility for all decisions. Hence, Yahweh has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all your prophets, and Yahweh has proclaimed disaster against you. Who is really in control? Even though the demonic are active and powerful and are influencing nations and kings, Yahweh is always in control, and every decision starts and stops with him. Hence, he is the Alpha and the Omega. As we have discussed, Yahweh always works through agency. Being the Alpha, the decisions and the impetus always starts with him. But the work itself is carried out through agency, most of the time through angelic beings who are his servants, both good and bad angels. Even the Son of God works in an agency relationship with the Father and does only what the Father tells him to do. But as we saw with the story of King Ahab, Yahweh always takes responsibility for the result. Hence, he is the Omega. And although it seems so often that the spirits must be exercising their own will, which they are, their will is still subject to their master, Yahweh Saba Oath. Thus, even though they may not do as he desires, they do as he wills. He just uses their will, their agenda, their intention, and their wickedness, their evil, and their excesses to accomplish what he wills in the life of his bondservants. This is the same pattern we see in the book of Job. God is the impetus, and all the disaster and drama is carried out by angelic agency. Understanding this truth led King Nebuchadnezzar to proclaim in Daniel 4, 34 through 35, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? The heavenly council. In the Psalms, we are given a view of the heavenly council and understand that they are not doing what they were created or empowered to do, which is be the faithful judges of the worldly kingdoms. That is Yahweh's desire for them. Rather, in their excess, they honor the wicked and persecute the godly. But again, even though that is clearly not what God desires, it is his will. He does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. Psalms 82. God presides over heaven's court. He pronounces judgment on the heavenly beings. 
How long will you hand down unjust decisions by favoring the wicked? Give justice to the poor and the orphan. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and helpless. Deliver them from the grasp of evil people. But these oppressors know nothing. They are so ignorant. They wander about in darkness while the whole world is shaken to the core. I say, you are gods. You are all children, or literally sons, of the Most High. But you will die like mere mortals and fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, and judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. Yahweh's heavenly court or his council is comprised of gods, sons of God, the first of the creation of God, as in, in the beginning, God created the heavens and all that dwells in the heavens before he created the earth. They have been empowered by Yahweh to judge or rule over humanity. And that light, they are like gods, and that is what he calls them. By the way, this idea that the angels are the sons of God or the sons of the Most High comes from the oldest book in the Codex, the book of Job. And it is used as a reference to those gathering in Yahweh's heavenly council, including Satan, and to the angels, the morning stars, who were with Yahweh and were rejoicing when he created mankind. Who reigns on high? Now, let's be clear. The fact that God calls these angels gods does not mean that these spiritual beings created by Yahweh are in any way comparable to him. For he declares, I am he, and there is no God besides me. I am the first and the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. For great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols, but Yahweh made the heavens, which is another way of saying he alone made the gods. Yahweh, he is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. Yahweh stands alone and distinct from the spiritual glories that he created. O Yahweh, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. For Yahweh is a great God and a great king above all gods. The distinction between Yahweh and their gods is that being created beings, they are by definition limited in their capability by what their creator gave to them. For instance, they do not know the future, just like they cannot recount the past and declare all that Yahweh has done. He alone is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Isaiah 44 6 through 8. I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God beside me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient people, and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. And do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. Isaiah 41, 4 and 21 through 24. Who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, Yahweh, am the first and with the last. I am he. Present your case, Yahweh says. Bring forward your strong arguments. The king of Jacob says, let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, Declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome. Or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward, that we may know that you are gods. Indeed, 
do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. Behold, you are of no account, and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. So it is clear that there is no God who is beside Yahweh. He stands alone, and there is no one like him. That comment, indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together, simply highlights the point that they work for Yahweh Sabaoth. Yahweh is the master, and they have no independent power or authority that does not come directly from his command and his approval. They do according to his will. We see this in the story of Job, where Satan's authority to afflict Job came directly from Yahweh, an authority which was also limited by Yahweh. In addition, when it was all said and done, Job blamed Yahweh, not Satan. And Yahweh agreed with Job and took personal responsibility. Satan was just the tool in the hand of Yahweh to shape Job. The tool does not receive the credit, the glory, nor the blame, but the one whose hand holds the tool receives it all. Still, in comparison to mankind, these gods, these rulers, are far more glorious in might and power, such that some of them have manifested, and even today now manifest themselves to humanity as actual gods to be worshipped. And this pattern will come full circle when the beast demands to be worshipped as God amongst all of humanity. And as with the kings of the earth who manifest their rule through human leaders, the beast will be the power, the authority, the voice, and the glory of the man we will call the Antichrist. And this is why throughout the entire book of Revelation, we are given no information about the man, just the spirit, the beast, kings slash judges of the earth. In Revelation, these gods are referred to as the kings of the earth, indicating that they are those responsible to judge and rule the nations of mankind. However, Revelation 1.5 unequivocally states that Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. After all, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But this reference to the kings of the earth comes from a much older part of the codex. And just like Psalm 82, it also contains an intense warning to these arrogant angels. Psalm 2, verses 2 through 6 and verses 10 through 12. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel against Yahweh and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Yahweh scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges, or leaders of the earth. Worship Yahweh with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the sun that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. Clearly, God's judgment on the heavenly beings in Psalm 82 and his chastisement and warning in Psalm 2 are referring to the fallen angels, those who belong on Yahweh's left side in the corporate meetings, those who have handed down unjust decisions and chosen to favor the wicked. They stand in contrast to the angelic rulers who hand down just decisions. For instance, in the case of the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. By the way, Yahweh does not make idle threats. We're even told that he deprives of intelligence the chiefs or the kings of the earth's people, and he makes them wander in pathless waste, which is where demons who have been expelled from the realm of humanity are sent. 
These fallen angels are the kings of the earth, the true powers behind the nations. They are also the judges or the leaders of the earth who decide for humanity what they will value, what they will honor, and what they are permitted to do and speak. These are those who refuse to give homage to the sun, and they will be consumed in his wrath. This behind-the-veil view of reality explains why it often appears that there's this grand conspiracy amongst types of nations, for instance, the Western nations, such that people do and say the same things. It's as if all the rulers at every level of society, from the elementary teachers to the judge to the senator, sat in a room and agreed on the very words that would be trending in each generation and the very deeds that would be acceptable in each generation. It's as if they are attempting to recreate the world they failed to create at Babel. This truth first hit me years ago in connection with a family member who was struggling with anorexia. I was always amazed at the particular phrases and words that she used and how she said things. Then one day I was watching an interview with a young teen in England who was anorexic, and she used the exact same words, the same phrases, with no deviation, and she even spoke with the same intonation. How is that possible if there are not some spirit, some dominion behind this sickness that united their thoughts and words? The glorious ones, demons in disguise. With all of that as our background, the spirit through Peter calls these angelic rulers glorious ones, or literally angelic glories, because of their position and prominence amongst the creation of God being greater in power and might in comparison to humanity. Some of these angels are so glorious that they have been able to manifest themselves to humanity as gods, just like Yahweh calls them, and they solicit the worship and obedience of the peoples and nations. To name a few, there is Baal, Ashtoreth, Eshtarte, Milcom, Molech, Chemosh, Jupiter or Zeus, Beelzebub, Rimnon, Marduk, Belial, and Dagon. There are others, but these just jump off the pages of the Codex. Each of these gods manifested themselves through some form of religion that required worship, sacrifice, servitude, and obedience. We'll get into this more when we get to Revelation 13 and 17, when we discuss the seven heads of the beast. Here's a hint. It's a reference to demonic rulers. Then in the New Testament, the Spirit told us flat out that the gods that are worshipped by the nations are demons. The sacrifices they make to their idols are just sacrifices made unto demons. Thus, the entire time that Israel and the nations worshipped gods like Baal, Ashereth, Molech, and Chemosh, they were just worshipping the angelic fallen angels, gods, sons of God, that serve Yahweh and his heavenly counsel. Spirits behind the religion of Christianity. In our passage, the Spirit equates our obsession with the work of our hands, that which is done in His name, with another manifestation of demonic beings who stand behind our obsession with religion, law, the worship of God, and all that we can do to do it right for God. This is how serious this issue is. The demonic works so cleverly, for they pose as angels of light, as something that is good, seducing all those who are willing. And far too many are willing. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. We were warned about this in the image of the army of horsemen, 
the demonic beings with the tails like serpents who are even now corrupting people with their false prophecy and false teaching that is expressed through those men and women who are running the domains of religion. This was also seen in the scorpion-like tales of the locust-like demons who will have prophetic power over the people they sting and torment. Remember, behind the leaders of humanity are the spiritual rulers. 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, who end will be according to their deeds. And absent passages like this one, warning us of the demonic, we would otherwise be blind to this reality. The obsession with the work of our hands is the worship of demons. And if we do not repent, we will not choose to enter into his rest. And he will not let us enter into his rest. And we will be those who know great tribulation. To get a free download of the full written transcript with all the scripture references footnoted, please go to threshermediagroup.com. That is T-H-R-E-S-H-E-R mediagroup.com. This is Steve with Thresher Media Group. When you're ready to listen, tune in.